Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Warning, the following podcast has some foul language you may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Thursday, February 10th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Michelle Childs, potential Supreme Court nominee, has many impressive items on her resume. She's run state labor and water departments. She has high marks from legal ratings agencies. Her colleagues love her. Less than 1% of her 5,000 rulings have been dismissed or vacated. And this next one is apparently one of her big selling points. She did not attend one of the best law schools in the country. That's right. The New York Times headline is court candidate with no Ivy on her resume. Child's home state Senator Lindsey Graham was on Face the Nation getting even more specific than just non-Ivy. She's considered to be a fair-minded, highly uh, gifted uh, jurist. Uh, she's one of the most decent people I've ever met. It would be good for the court to have somebody who's not at Harvard or Yale. I get the point. Breyer, Kasich, Roberts, Kagan went to Harvard. Thomas, Alito, Sotomayor, Kavanaugh went to Yale. We do have a Notre Dame justice in Coney Barrett. If Childs is named to the court, it'll go Eli Crimson, Irish Gamecock. But specifically selecting for someone who didn't go to a great law school seems a little odd. I would say 0% of the court's good decisions or bad decisions stem from the fact that the law education of the justices making the decision was really, really good. I don't know that Amy Coney Barrett, having gone to Notre Dame, big disruption in the Harvard-Yale deadlock on the court, I don't know that makes her any better from a ruling that could have come from Alito or what Scalia would have done. Scalia, a Harvard man, the president who appointed all the members of the court, by the way, for the record, a Yale undergrad, a Yale undergrad in Georgetown Law School, Yale undergrad, Harvard MBA, Columbia undergrad in Harvard Law, University of Pennsylvania undergrad, Occidental and Fordham also make up for total years of those gentlemen's educations. But it is Ivy League dominated. Is that a bad thing? It's certainly true that good ideas don't only come from the Ivy League. I didn't go to the Ivy League. No one in my family did. My sister tried to tell me that the University of Miami at Ohio was in the Ivy League. She was lying to me. I know a few Yale law professors. I do have to say, they're all really smart. I know a lot of people who did go to Ivy League schools. They're not universally brilliant or insightful or special. But I also know a lot of people who didn't go to Ivy League schools, and neither are they. I would say the Ivy League graduates in general write pretty well. They're better writers, and in this job that Michelle Childs is up for, writing's pretty important. I don't think non-Ivy League should be seen as a benefit. Yeah, it definitely shouldn't be a prerequisite or a de facto prerequisite, but the quality of a person's education has some bearing on the person's qualifications. And Harvard or Yale Law does say something about the quality of that education, i.e. it was pretty good. I don't know that we have to actively seek out non-Ivy Leaguers to balance things out. If we want non-Ivy Leaguers, they're really easy to find. 
The added irony in this overall trend is right now there's a movement that says, hey, let's hire from state schools or let's hire maybe people who don't even have an undergraduate degree. We've been too locked in to the so-called meritocracy and elite institutions. And that trend going outside the elites, that's happening at the exact same time as there's this other trend of getting people into the elite schools who heretofore had been denied entry. So if the timing of these two simultaneous social experiments works out, we will be producing a generation of Ivy League graduates who had once been shut out of the Ivy League at precisely the same time that we stop favoring and being at all impressed by graduates of the Ivy League. Maybe we'll even come to loathe them if all works out well. Congratulations, you have the most prized diploma in America. Everyone now shuns it. So maybe this Syracuse law grad, Joe Biden, taps this South Carolina undergrad and law grad, Michelle Childs. And if that happens, well, where will Harvard and Yale be left? Besides nine seats in the Senate, 31 in the House of Representatives, and the Secretaries of State, Transportation, Energy, Treasury, and the Attorney General. On the show today, Donald Trump alleged to have mistaken a toilet for a filing cabinet, once again abusing American standards. Now, my problem is, you know me, I don't traffic in the scatological. I tend to avoid bathroom humor. I find it uncouth. And yet, number one, it's hard to avoid bathroom humor. Number two, references seem to be everywhere. I'd hope the purveyors of this news had waited for the Friday news dump. They didn't. And of course, the comparison, the comparison with fervor to Hillary Clinton mishandling her emails, not a fair comparison, say Trump loyalists, and yet in both cases, each are alleged to have wiped the server. But this is why we have a spiel to discuss such matters. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak 
that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The vaccination rates for the country of Canada are 85% have had one shot, 80% are what we would call in the U.S. fully vaccinated, two shots or a full dose of the Johnson & Johnson, 42% have been boosted. Compared to the United States, they're... 10% higher for one shot, 15% higher for fully vaccinated, and almost 20% higher for boosted. Canada, the citizens of Canada, are doing pretty great in terms of endorsing the vaccine. However, the truckers of Canada are not so sanguine about restrictions that they perceived have been placed upon them. And they've been protesting. I find when regular citizens protest, it sometimes gets attention. But when truckers protest, it almost always gets attention. And I have a theory why. They have trucks. Trucks block things. That causes big problems. But I wanted to talk about what's been going on in the capital of Canada and other cities with these trucker protests to talk about the slight differences between Canada and the U.S. and quite selfishly to use Canada a little bit as a focus group to see what's different because it's so interesting. No better person than Nelson Wiseman to discuss this with. Professor Wiseman is a professor emeritus at the University of Toronto in political science. He specializes in Canadian government politics. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Were you surprised that the truckers would stage such a intense protest? I was surprised, and I still continue to be surprised, how long this protest has gone on. And I am surprised that the uh, municipal authorities allowed the truckers access to the city right in front of Parliament the way they did, and didn't fully appreciate the messages that these truckers were conveying on social media that they had no intention of leaving. The authorities believed the municipal authorities, that there'd be a one or two day demonstration as there was here in Toronto, and then they would disperse. They assumed that the truckers would be reasonable, more reasonable than the truckers' own words indicated that they would be. Yes. And let me point out that when you talk about the Canadian truckers, I can say that the Canadian Truckers Association is vehemently opposed to this demonstration. We ought not to confuse a relatively small group with the sentiments of Canadian truckers generally. I would say uh, somewhere between 85 and 90 percent of Canada's truckers are fully vaccinated. That's two doses plus a booster. Why do you think Canadians embraced vaccines more than Americans did? There's greater deference to authority in Canada. The United States has a founding myth of equality, of individualism. Canada doesn't have a founding myth. The three most cited words in Canada's Constitution of 1867 are peace, order, and good government. So there's been a greater acceptance, uh, not only of uh, government's authority, but of the utility and instrumentality of government. 
uh, Americans are brought up in a culture and a schooling which uh, prizes the individual and enterprise and sees uh, government as a yoke. Canada doesn't have that tradition. Now, of course, some people have that outlook, just as some people in the United States have an outlook where they, they're favorably disposed to government. Right. And the United States was largely founded by cultists and fanatics and religious extremists and hucksters and anti-scientists. And this is not to say there weren't some of those elements in Canada, but it's just not as prevalent, I take it, in the national character. Yeah, true. Indeed, Canada was founded in the 1860s by anti-Americans. The, the, you know, they, had a good, they had a good point then, especially when you look at slavery. <laughs> remember, you, you were, you were uh, tarring and feathering uh, what Canada calls loyalists, what you guys call Tories. And incidentally, Tory is the, re- is the term we use uh, to call our, our, our conservative party in Canada. So to go back to the truckers, uh, from the coverage I've been reading in the Canadian press, It's a little different, I think, than the coverage they would have gotten in the United States. But I also think it's accurate, which is to say, mostly in Canada, the concerns of the truckers are being heard, I think somewhat dismissed. And the idea is they are an outlier. Um, They certainly represent some portion of society, but it's not that threatening. Whereas in the United States, similar demonstrations, I think, do upset us more and convince us that there are many more people uh, for every equivalent of an angry trucker. There's maybe a thousand people behind them in the United States and in Canada, even taking the population difference into account. It doesn't seem like that's the case. Yeah, that's true. Now, Let's not confuse general demonstrations with with what's going on in Ottawa. It's because of these initial errors, a misappreciation of what it means having these huge 18 wheelers just park with the air brakes on and, and nobody leaving. Yes, you have fringe groups in both societies, but in our society, they don't bring guns to their protests. And we've had very few arrests here. The police thought they could negotiate and have the truckers leave. But the truckers have just been, their spine has been strengthened, largely because, in large part, because of the role of uh, America. The United States shows Canada its way. So one of the protest organizers appears on Fox News, on Tucker Carlson, and and he uses the language of American freedom. And you have... $10 $10 million coming up to GoFundMe, this crowdfunding service based in the U.S., and the overwhelming majority of contributions are from Americans. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, this organizer who was on Tucker Carlson's show, the media, he didn't mention it, but he's currently being sued and has been for the past few years for defaming an Islamic group in Canada who he claimed is funding terrorist activities. The other organizer who's listed on the GoFundMe site belongs to a party in Alberta which got less than 1% of the vote in the last election. Now, the election was fought by the Liberals on whether to impose vaccine mandates on federal civil servants. The Liberals won the election. 
the conservatives lost because they were opposed to it. So let's talk about the media. I've seen these truckers interviewed and their representatives interviewed on CBC, TV, and radio. But are you saying that no Canadian outlet would do the sort of interview that Tucker Carlson did? No, Canadian outlets will interview them, but they won't give them the uh, amount of time and pumping up their message the way the American media have. So carte blanche without fact checks, without context. Exactly. Like this fellow that I'm talking about that was on Tucker Carlson's show, I had never heard of him. But now, and I have seen his name now in the Canadian, in the, in the Globe and Mail, which is the equivalent to the New York Times in Canada. It appeared a week ago, and for the only the second time did I see it today. I haven't seen him, it's true, mentioned on CBC or our other national network, CTV. Now, Mike, you're an an authority on media. So let me draw another contrast which you may not realize. Right-wing Canadians in Canada have tuned in. They see the success of Fox News and that business strategy of moving toward polarization. So a number of years ago, an alternative right-wing self-styled TV platform called Sun TV. It was created in Canada. It folded after a couple of years. Mm -hmm. There just wasn't that level of support for it. So I know you've written a book on Canadian political culture. You've studied Canadian political culture. You've convinced me I was inclined to agree with you, but there is such a thing as Canadian political culture. Are these protests within Canadian political culture or somehow outside of it? My book's on Canadian political culture, but if you delve into it, the thesis I'm pursuing is that the best way to look at Canada is in terms of regional political cultures. So now let me elaborate and connect this directly to the United States. Is it not interesting that the Freedom Convoy originated in Alberta and its two organizers are from Alberta. Why Alberta? Well, isn't it interesting that a century ago, more than one-fifth of Albertans were born in the United States? In fact, the founder of a major town in southern Alberta, a town called Cardston, was founded by the son-in-law of Brigham Young. Now, Alberta comes the closest to and conservative parties, right-wing parties, are more successful in Alberta than any other part of Canada. So this is part of their political culture. And their political culture is very different from the political culture of Ontario or the Atlantic provinces, which were founded by what Americans call Tories, who are running from the American Revolution. A century ago, Alberta was opened up for Americans. You you know the term, the last best West. Yeah. Well, the last best West in North America, agricultural land you could get was in Alberta. So uh, people who couldn't get land in the U.S. came into the United States. And indeed, one of the uh, leaders in on, of Alberta politics had been the former populist governor of Kansas. That populist streak is stronger in Alberta than anywhere else. So 
it, just as you've got differences in political cultures in the United States, even within California, between North and South, it's even more dramatic in Canada. So as far as I've gotten, I think, an impression of uh, your opinion of the protests that it is somewhat surprising they've been allowed to continue and be disruptive for as long as they have. And just so our listeners know, even though there is no First Amendment, literally, Canada has a charter of rights and freedoms that guarantees the freedom of peaceful assembly. So there is a right to protest. There is no right to break the law with your trucks blocking intersections while you protest. But I have read political scientists such as yourself in Canada wondering and worrying. Here, I'll read a quote to you. This is from another political science in Canada, and he wonders and worries well, that it's only a matter of time before the convoys wind down, but he worries about polarization heightening over topics like vaccine mandates, and he worries about what might be next to come. Do you? The United States shows Canada its future. We get American media. You know, if I go to Europe or if I go to Latin America, I get a European version of CNN, or I get a, a Spanish version of CNN. If I live in Canada, I only get the American version of CNN. And a, a lot of Canadians, that's what they're watching for their news. So the, the Trump presidency and what happened on January the 6th last year has emboldened certain elements in Canada. So I hadn't seen people running around with the Confederate flag in Canada before. Hey, now I saw it. What I saw in the Ottawa demonstration the other day was a, some guy on a horse with a cowboy hat with a Trump 2024 flag. That wouldn't have existed 10 years ago in the United States and certainly not in Canada. So what happens is that this Americanization it, it isn't just affecting Canada. We also see it in aspects of European politics and even in Asian politics and Latin American politics. You look at Brazil. So it's not surprising, but let's not exaggerate the, the size of the fringe in Canada, because right. in the United States, it's, I'd say, more than a fringe. You've got a very large percentage of your population that believes the last election in the United States was stolen, which is a ludicrous belief. Do you look to your neighbor to the south and worry, as many do, of insurrection or civil war here? Some people have a good news bias. Some people have a bad news bias. I have a good news bias. And, and I'm very hopeful about the United States. I think the United States is the most creative, dynamic society in the world. It's also potentially the craziest. You know, I, I can't uh, predict the future, but I'm actually quite hopeful. Let me connect this again to the uh, truckers' protest and uh, vaccine denialism. Here's the irony. As we're getting these truckers protests, and they've been very tame outside of Ottawa and at the Alberta-Montana border, what strikes me is that just as in the United States, because here's a thing we really share with you, it's the Omicron virus, but we got it at the same time because we go back and forth across the border. So ironically, as the if virus is subsiding, fewer people are going into hospital, the mandates are being lowered. They're being lowered by your democratic governors. That's We're in the process of that happening now. So the mandates might peter out 
at the same time as this truck convoy is going to peter out. And the other issue that I want to say about the truckers is that the Ottawa police force, it, remember, Ottawa is maybe the seventh or eighth largest city in the country. It just doesn't, have, it's just a few hundred policemen. It doesn't have the, the manpower to enforce laws. That's going to change now. And we don't have a National Guard. Your, your governor's calling National Guard all the time. We don't have that. Calling in the military is a trickier thing, but mm -hmm. that may end up happening here. Nelson Wiseman is Professor Emeritus at the University of Toronto. I thank you and Alberta. I'm keeping, now I'm keeping my eye on you. Thank you, Professor Wiseman. Thank you, Mike. That was peachy. And now the spiel. Donald Trump's second place vote getter in two successive elections was in the news again today. Here, MSNBC's Willie Geist reads an item unearthed by Maggie Haberman. Peter Baker is the man asked for his reaction. The voice you hear gasping in the background belongs to Mika Brzezinski. Staff in the White House residence periodically discovered wads of printed paper clogging a toilet in the White oh House God. residence. Most believe the president had been flushing documents down his toilet. Yeah. Your thoughts? Well, <laughs> well, first of all, I think Maggie has reported, I'm sure, is true. And it doesn't, I, I, it's both, again, we keep coming to the back of this phrase of shocking and yet not surprising. Is anybody surprised? Well, yeah, I actually am surprised. I guess I'm naive. I did not expect Donald Trump's toilet to be a news item in early 2022. But we knew the president routinely ripped up documents and was trailed by staffers who taped them together and begged him not to do so to no avail. So it kind of makes sense that he would take evasive maneuvers. Soon, Brzezinski framed Republican acceptance, or I guess lack of immediate disapproval, as hypocrisy. You would think Republicans would be foaming at the mouth, chanting, lock him up. No, I wouldn't think that because I have some knowledge of Republicans. Also, since there is no enforcement clause of the Records Act, it would be pointless to chant lock him up, but I will concede a careful scanning of the legal code did not come into play in most of these Republicans deciding not to chant lock him up. Remember, the majority of Republicans are hesitant to chastise the former president over blatant lies and insurrection encouragement. Are they gonna walk the plank with an extrajudicial prescription to a report based on unnamed sources in a book set to be published in seven months? I doubt it. Still, Kurt Bardella, former congressional staffer, thought this did raise the specter of Republican hypocrisy. Where is the Republican zeal for, for security, for preservation, for accountability? They have nothing to say. This yeah. is about complying with the Presidential Records Act. The famous Republican preservation zeal. Wait, is this about statues? Is that what we're talking about here? Maybe I could turn this around. Oh, all the liberals, they're all against Donald Trump when he wants to dispose of a flimsy piece of paper. But when the history in question is a statue of Thomas Jefferson, where's your preservation instinct then, liberals? Oh, it's one thing when we're flushing history down the toilet. When it's Washington on his steed, where are you then? <sighs> toilet flushers. Morning Joe himself was next to jump in. 
noting that toilet-based hearings could make for weeks of compelling TV, even though the last 45 seconds on the very subject barely rose to the level of noteworthy. How wonderful to have primetime hearings that actually have, have people talking about Donald Trump taking records, official White House records, shredding them up, shoving them down the toilet, staff members come- Flushing documents, sorry, it's just an allegation right now, the allegation of flushing documents. It's bad, it would be bad if it were true. I think it might be true. That said, it's what? The 1,400th worst thing Trump did? It's not an arbitrary estimate. I think it's fair to say that not a day went by where Donald Trump didn't do something as bad as destroying or flushing a document. He was in office for 1,460 days, so maybe I was being generous. It's nothing more egregious or differently egregious from what we already know. It's just that there's a toilet involved. And toilets are funny or humiliating for whoever has to visualize alongside the toilets. This is why people say Donald Trump has a gold toilet. He does not. If this were especially bad or especially actionable, the reporter who broke the story wouldn't have, excuse the phrase, sat on it for this long. The news media, some more than others, are positively obsessed with Trump arcana. They need Trump. He is the force that gives them meaning, or at least ratings. In truth, we don't need more stupid, time-consuming commissions. And yes, that's true even if the Republicans did have a lot of stupid, time-consuming Benghazi commissions. And by the way, one decently run commission designed to get answers about an event where four Americans died, and as the saying goes, where mistakes were made, that wouldn't have been bad. But we do have a January 6th commission. Let's just stick with that. Let's not get distracted by disinformation from the right or what can generally be described by shiny objects, not the gold kind, from the left. 80 subpoenas have been issued by the January 6th commission so far. It is not clear how many key figures will even honor them. Let us stay focused and serious and make sure the momentum that we've seen so far isn't just flushed down the drain. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's senior producer. Michelle Hunter is New England regional manager for Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The GIST. Oomperu depuru duperu, and thanks for listening.